Welcome to Fundamentally Drained Podcast with your hosts, Father Everett Lees, Father Tom Dahlman, and Justin Dixon. Three Christians exploring Christianity from a perspective other than the fundamental view from which we have become fundamentally drained. We'll begin the conversation, and you take it from there. Welcome back to Fundamentally Drained. We have been on Sabbath, <laughs> a season of rest, um, although I'm not quite sure anyone would actually define the last season of summer as rest. It's been more like sitting in a sauna, <laughs> doing things with families and communities and parishes and youth groups and all kinds of things. So welcome. Welcome, Tom. How are you, buddy? I'm great. How good. are you? I'm good. Everett? I'm great. I'm doing well. Excellent. Everybody cooking and burning and sweating here in Oklahoma. <laughs> so we have we have a what's that, Tom? When fall comes, I'm gonna really miss the hundred and nine degree days. <laughs> so we have a guest with us for our first episode back. And uh I'm gonna let uh Father Tom introduce him. So Tom, take it away. So today on our podcast, we have my friend and co-minister in our parish, Gary Kirby. He's one of the uh, deacons in our parish. If you're not Episcopalian, a, a deacon is someone who went to a seminary through our diocese, and they do it for, they have a four-year process to be ordained. Uh, and um, learn most of the same stuff that I learned, but the difference is they do it for free while they're <laughs> while they're uh, still working. And so Gary is, um, has a great servant's heart, and I think he has an amazing and difficult but important story to tell to us, and that's why I asked him if he would be on the podcast today. Cool. Welcome, Gary. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. All right. So go ahead. And uh, if uh, what we're going to do is Gary's going to talk to us a little bit and share a little bit about his story, and we're going to discuss it and ask some questions and kind of go from there. So take it away, Gary. Thank you. Um, like Tom said, it's a, it, it's a, it's a long story, um, but it, it is difficult. Uh, towards the tail end of it, but it didn't start off like that. Um, like most things, it starts off, you know, innocently enough. Um, kid from Missouri decides to join the military because there really aren't any uh, job options in the small town that I was from. Um, in 1989, after I joined, uh, the world opened up and there was a lot to do. Um, I was being sent... Uh, TDY, you know, some places were nice, some places were questionable. Um, Desert Storm, Turkey, uh, Iraq, um, you know, you name it, all over the world. Throughout the course of that, um, I picked up a lot of uh, interesting and fun events, times, things that were done, but also occurred a lot of injuries. And um, the military's answer for that, at least it seemed this way, was give them drugs, you know, uh, if 800 milligram Motrin doesn't cut it, 
we'll give you muscle relaxers and narcotics. Mm. And it works, you know, it, it, it drives away the pain for a bit. But what happens is you take it exactly like they've asked you to, you do what you're supposed to do. But after about 15 to 20 years of being on a high narcotic and high regimen of muscle relaxers, it starts to affect you. And it started to affect me relatively negative, uh, really in a bad way. <clears throat> and um, it drove a wedge between my family, um, my friends, uh, and it nearly cost me my life. Mm. Uh, and we can get into that. Um, but I'll pause for a moment to, if anybody has any questions or wants to go into detail about, you know, what military service or things like that. So, what were you taking, Gary? Um, it, there was a lot. Uh, it started off uh, with uh, Norco, um, about a 10 milligram pill of that. And then um, I moved over to Oxycontin. And then I was on uh, Flexril and two or three other <clears throat> muscle relaxers, pardon me. And um, this was all at the same time. Uh, all of these were taken at the same time. Oh, wow. At the very top end of it, I think at any one given time during the day, I was up to about 800 to, I'm sorry, uh, 80 to 100 milligrams of narcotic per day. So mm. that's just to get by. Hmm. Um, because yeah. the pain that you dealt with was so crippling that you couldn't or did the pain kind of subside and this just became the normal functioning uh you know yeah the normal functioning go-to well I, initially when i injured my back mm. um that's what they uh, gave me for uh, the back pain i got you after two failed surgeries and mm. um fusions and implants uh the pain was the pain it was and is still there to this day oh wow um so trying to mitigate that, get in front of it while still uh, maintaining a very rigorous and active military lifestyle. That was the challenge. Oh, wow. Um, so, and when I retired in 2015, I was no longer under that regiment and that requirement, but I was still addicted. Uh, oh, wow. You know, so. Hmm. And all of this was, was completely legally uh, prescribed to you. I mean, this is this is this is what the doctor said. This is what will will treat it. I mean, that's yes. that's sort of the crazy thing about pain medications is is that it's it's something that we're allowed to have, right? Yes. Well, you know, and and that's and that's part that's one part of it. Um, when we talk about addiction, or at least in the past, whenever I'd heard about addiction. It was a very stigmatized um, event. You, you pictured uh, images of people sitting under a bridge, uh, shooting, mm. you know, heroin into their right. arms or crack cocaine or something along those lines. Even as my work as a police officer, I still had that, you know, um, idea in my head that these people were the addicts. I was the one who was doing what was, uh, you know, prescribed. I just can see myself in that capacity as right. becoming an addict. Wow. So, wow. But. You mentioned police officer. You uh, was that post military? No, um, I joined the police department in 
2011, I'm sorry, 2009. And uh, I was a reserve officer with uh, Midwest City oh, okay. uh, until uh, 2015. And then uh, went to work with Hera for another four years after that. So, um, so I had a, I had a long career with uh, the police department, and actually, it was in 2001, not 2019, that I joined. Um, so now I will say this: I knew enough to not, you know, um, medicate prior to going on shift mm. uh, with the police department because there's a lot of liability sure. that's associated with that, you know. And you just have to work through the pain, mm. um, which isn't helped by a uh, gun belt and all the stuff that you carry with you right? Uh, as you work. Right. So, it, yeah, it's sort of double magnified uh, the everything because you would work at night, go back to the military during the day, and then work an entire weekend. Um, and it never seemed like you really got much of a break or relief. Mm. Wow. So... So, Gary, what was the thing that brought about change? Or... Well, like I said, it had a, the, I had started to change um, both mentally and I think physically. Um, and my family had noticed it. Uh, I, of course, couldn't because I'm in it. Um, mm -hmm. And everything to me looks just exactly normal. But my wife had been telling me for a long time, you need to stop. You need to see somebody about doing this. And I didn't want to hear it. Uh, to me, there was nothing wrong. And it escalated one night uh, into a, a altercation. And she left and stayed away for quite some time. And uh, we, were, we were very close to calling it quits. And that's when I decided I'm going to get off of this stuff. I'm going to quit, uh, but I'm going to quit cold turkey because if I went on it like this, you know, if somebody just gave it to me and I start taking it one day, um, surely it's easy enough to stop and, you know, go back to life as normal, whatever mm. that looked like. Right. But I had no idea what a normal life looked like after 20 years mm. of doing this. So... Um, and that's the part I was telling you early where it almost killed me, um, mm. because it's not easy coming, coming off narcotics. Hmm. How long do you think that, uh, from, so, uh, did you enter into a rehab facility and how long did that take to, to where you felt like you were, um, free from them? I didn't enter a rehab facility. No. Okay. Now, my, uh, my wife, uh, Rachel, and I have to say this about Rachel, um, through everything, um, she has been a rock. She, it hasn't been easy on her. I didn't make things easy for her uh, while I was going through this. Um, but to her credit, and by the grace of God, she stood by me. Hmm. Um, but she left one night, and uh, that's when I decided, you know what? She's going to be gone for the next four days. She's in Tulsa visiting our, our kids who live there at the time. I'm just going to stop. Um, I'm going to stop taking them, and that's going to be that. Um, I have the strength and willpower to do that on my own. And I'll tell you, those four days, and um, 
yeah, it, it nearly, it almost killed me. Hmm. And I didn't realize what was happening so much. I knew that it was very painful. Right. Um, uh, it, it felt like your body was being put through a, a ring or your bones were being crushed all at the same time. Oh Every muscle is contracting. Um, and you want so much to uh, go back and get some relief by, by medicating. Mm. But the reason that I'm here in the first place in this situation with my wife gone and everybody leaving me is because of the drugs. So I didn't do that. Mm. Um, but it wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do. Wow. To try it, but so so as so Gary, did you did you like consult with anyone, or was this just I'm just I'm going to do this, and then how long was it until you you know kind of felt like you were under that that crushing weight of uh, withdrawal? Yeah, withdrawal. It's exactly what it was. It was withdrawal. Um, four days. Um, the, that was the worst of it was the first four days, hmm. um, where your, where your body just feels like it's, it's going to, um, explode on itself, just implode. And, um, it, everything, everything hurt. And I'll tell you, if it hadn't, it's, it's the craziest thing. If it hadn't been for my dog who laid there with me, mostly in the hallway of our house. Uh, the entire time, I, I don't know that I would have made it. Um, mm. But she stayed by my side, and um, but to fully get out from underneath it, I think um, I'm still there. You know, there are there are days where uh, the cravings come back, mm. especially when the pain is you know really really bad. Uh, if I've worked uh, in the yard or the weather changes at the same time. It's it's tempting to go back to uh, to something like that. Um, so four days for the really really bad stuff. Um, about a week or so after that to kind of purge uh, things from my body, hmm. and then a lifetime I think of still being an addict. Wow! Wow! Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's a uh... It's a lot. <laughs> I just know. I don't know the, the. I don't know if there's words to kind of, uh, kind of summarize what that hearing that is like, uh, because it's not our experience here. So thank you. Um, it was mm -hmm. very brave to share, and we appreciate that very much. Gary, um, what what is what is different now that you're not on the medications like? You know, if somebody were to, you know, be listening to this and, and they're, you know, struggling with, with addiction, whether it's alcohol or painkillers or, or whatever, um, but what, what's on the other side that, that you say, this is, this, this was all worth it. When you're in the middle of it, um, or when you're going through and, uh, using medication, uh, basically an addict, a practicing addict. Um, nothing looks unfamiliar. Everything seems just as it should to mm -hmm. the person who's, you know, doing, taking the drugs. You will notice um, 
that you're more easily agitated. Um, your mind plays tricks on you. Uh, paranoia, right? Um, everybody started to withdraw, you know, my family, my wife, uh, friends. And, you know, the friends, I was like, well, you know, they're just they're just jerks and they have their own thing or whatever the case may be. Mm. Who needs them anyway? Uh, with the wife, you know, it's like, okay, well, if she's not with me, then who's she with? What's she doing? Um, is she seeing somebody else? Um, all of those things, it, it messes with your mind. It starts playing tricks with you. What's waiting on the other side is a peace of mind that it was never really them uh, that had the problem. It was me. Um, I'm the one who drove my friends away. I'm the one who caused my wife to want to be distant because I wasn't pleasant to be around. Um, I'm more patient. Um, well, that, I guess that depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think things through more. I'm not as impulsive. And um, I don't know. I, I found a, a greater zest for life on the other mm. side right yeah i still have pain but i don't try to mitigate it with the medication like i used to i try to do it like what i'm doing right here um this is a first for me actually by using it as a ministry uh and letting people know that there there's you're not the only one out there that this can happen to or has happened to. And even people in positions of like um, authority, like the military, police, um, clergy, uh, people in, you know, um, seats within like government, it can happen to anybody. Hmm. Um, but acknowledging it and working through it, that's the biggest thing. So I want to disagree with you, Gary, on one thing you just said. <laughs> you, you, okay. said you said this is the first time I'm doing this. This might be the first time you're doing it in a formal way, but the reason I wanted Gary to come talk to us today is because this is fundamentally drained, and we're talking about um, exploring Christianity from a perspective other than the fundamental view, as Justin says at the introduction of our podcast, and I grew up in that world, and it was not easy to be honest with what you're struggling about in that world. And what's striking about Gary is when he was in the middle of this and we were, and I was trying to figure out what was going on, waiting for him to tell me, he was always honest that, Hey, I'm really struggling. <laughs> I'm in a lot of pain. I'm hurting. I need some help. And then when, and since he's kind of, cross the hump and it's never behind you totally but since he's kind of moved in a new direction he's been 100% honest with people hey here's what here's what happened here's why I'm struggling and just the honesty is so helpful and so refreshing and and I know Gary says you've told me I wish I would have done it differently I found out there were lots of ways to help me get through that awful time that <laughs> Could have helped me instead yeah. of me just laying in the hallway with my dog, but um, mm. but your your openness and honesty about it has been helpful to people who have their own struggles and and 
and that's what we need in the church. We need that open and honest approach to what we're struggling. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Gary, and, and, and telling your story, have has has anyone, you know, come up and said, you know, wow, I've been struggling with this too, or you know, that suddenly they felt it safe to, to, to talk about that they may not have talked about it beforehand? I don't recall anyone coming right out and saying um, thank you for sharing that because I'm the one who's struggling with this. Uh, what I have heard, and if you you know kind of learn to read between the lines, mm. is, um, well, thank you for sharing that because I have a, uh, oh, uh, a cousin mm. who's dealing with the same thing or an mm. aunt or someone that I know very closely is struggling with this. So thank you for sharing that, and uh, I'll pass it on to them. Hmm. Um, and it very well may be a cousin, aunt, or uncle or something. Uh, I think more often than not, sometimes it's the person. Right. That you, because you can identify somebody um, once you've been through it who's who has some issues. Hmm. So... Uh, you said something to, um, and Tom, I want to go back to where you were, uh, talking about the church and things like that, but also, uh, you said that instead of laying in the hallway, you would do things differently. Um, is there, what, uh, would you tell someone in this situation? What could they do to get help and, uh, go from there? What would you recommend now? Well, like I said, the way I did it was... Um, dangerous mm. because coming off uh, that much medication uh, cold turkey um, can actually be deadly mm. um, and I didn't realize that well maybe I did realize that that might not be entirely true uh, but what I thought was I'm stronger than my addiction mm -hmm. me I am stronger than I can take this on um, and it's not going to hurt me what I would tell somebody is it's, it's going to be painful to be honest with those that you love that something has control over you, especially um, narcotics or drugs or something along those lines. Um, but that's the first step. Um, letting them know that it's bigger than you, it's um, controlling you, and you need help when you're ready for it to, to come out from underneath it. And then seeking out a doctor's advice on the best ways to do that so that you, you don't do more damage in the process or don't end up hospitalized or, you know, possibly dead because <clears throat> um, you went about doing it the wrong way. Right. So seek medical attention, uh, seek the help of your families, uh, get their support and buy-in and, um, uh, you know, their help through all this because it, it really does matter who you have in your corner. For sure. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Tom mentioned about how, you know, sometimes in, in church communities, I think this can be true in any church community. It can. That, that we can, <laughs> that we can, you know, hide our, our, our imperfections. We can hide, you know, we, we create a, a, a level of perfection. Um, so I guess it's going to be a two part question. One, um, how is this as a clergy person in which 
right, wrong, and different, we create a higher level of expectation for did this impact you? And two, what could churches do to be hospitable to people who are struggling and making them a safe space for them to um, to say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. What, like, what, yeah. So how this impact you as a clergy person in a, you know, some unique ways and, and sort of associated with that, what, what do churches need to, to do to be um, hospitable to people with struggling? Well, and both of those are really good questions because it's something that I've uh, thought of a lot, honestly. Um, as I was going through Iona, I was right about the midway point through Iona, which was what Tom was talking about, uh, the deacon's version of seminary, um, <laughs> is when I decided to quit. Mm. Um, so for about six months after, it was really tough. And for the two years prior, um, while I, I remember a lot of Iona and I took a lot from it, um, there's a lot that I think I could have drawn more from had I been clear-headed and sober. Hmm. Um, so as a clergy person, you know, it, it pays to keep your mind about you and, and recognize when something has the better of you, like drugs, alcohol, or some other form of addiction, but whatever that looks like. I mean, it could be in the form of porn or uh, drugs, alcohol, anything that takes you away from focusing on God and the people that you're meant to serve. Um, but it's also embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's embarrassing to say that something controlled me uh, to the point where I felt ineffective being able to do any of those things. Um, it's humiliating because you're doing exactly what the doctor has uh, told you to do. You're taking it exactly as prescribed, but after 15 to 20 years of that and never letting up off the gas, um, it does change the chemistry of your mind, of mm. your brain. It changes, it changes you as a person holistically inside and out. And you have to shed all that to figure out who the real person is underneath. Um, and so that takes honesty, humility, and it's, you know, getting on your knees in front of God and, you know, asking forgiveness and grace from your family who's put up with that for that long. But that honesty, I think, is exactly what can help the church to answer your second question, Everett. Um, once we've identified ourselves as people who have gone through this, be it clergy or lay alike, then we become those types of people who can help those who are ready to uh, talk about this in their own lives and uh, set up, you know, meetings uh, outside of like AA or along with them at AA and and talk this stuff through. because you, it's it's a lot like veterans, uh, police, and addicts. You don't know what it's like until you've actually been through it. Mm. So, and the best people to talk about it are those who've experienced it. Absolutely, always. Good question, Everett. <laughs> yeah, this is. Um, I mean, this is. Uh, thank you for being here and sharing, Gary. That's. Uh, 
very brave and and um I I don't even <laughs> I'm trying to put myself in your position and and I just can't believe how brave and courageous you are to share this story and uh because I I do understand where it could be very hard to be open um you said embarrassing things like that and I can see that um you know for uh, you and others in that world. And I think about it myself and I go, man, that's, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. So thank you for doing that. Tom, was there other things that you wanted to talk about? Well, there's so much Justin, but I couldn't get my, (laughs) I couldn't get my notes to print up, but, but I do, I do think Everett is right that it could happen in any church. And it takes, it takes a lot of, effort to fight that tendency that um you know in first john it says there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear or fear has to do with punishment um and the idea is that to me in this situation how that might apply is that we have an obligation as leaders in the church even though it's fearful to be honest and to be open about our struggles. I remember at seminary, one of our pastoral theology professor, Kathleen Russell said one and early in our seminary time, she said, everyone needs a therapist and everyone needs a spiritual director. And I, I raised my hand, how are we going to pull this off? And why do we need this? She (laughs) said, well, because I wouldn't trust a priest who didn't have a therapist. Hmm. And I had heard from the pulpit in my former church that that was, you know, if you're a strong man, you don't need that kind of help. It's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just blew my mind that here in one of my foundational classes at seminary, they're telling me, you need to get a therapist. Why? Well, because would you trust a priest to talk about your problems with who wasn't open and honest about their own problems Mm. that was eye-opening to me about at least and i'm not saying the whole episcopal church has that healthy approach but that's the that's the standard i was they were trying to call me to 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 get a therapist get a spiritual director and, and then when people come to me say yeah yeah i know what you know, to be able to relate to them in honesty mm-hmm. and having Gary having wearing a collar. Um, it just meant a lot to me personally, having been with him as he's gone through some of this, but also to be with him and his openness and honesty as well about that is just been refreshing for me and helpful and a reminder of that truth right right um i think there's a whole lot that that you know the church can learn from the 12-step programs um, whether it's you know sort of an official thing but just sort of the spirituality of the 12 steps um there's a fantastic book um, by um, paul zoll called grace and addiction um that it goes through the spirituality of, of addiction recovery um, because um, 
whether it's, you know, Dean, uh, Doug Travis was the dean when I was in seminary, and he said, we're all addicted to something. Um, that's what sin is. And some of, some of our sins are, are legal, some of our sins are illegal, um, you know, and we oftentimes think of things purely in, in whether the state says it's okay mm. or whether doctors mm-hmm. prescribed it. But I think it'd still be unhealthy and damaging to us, and so, you know, um, that that twelve step language is is really powerful. Yeah, for sure, Gary. Um, so we kind of typically keep our episodes here at a half hour, but I wanted to um, ask if there's anything that you have not had a chance to share or say. Um, that you would like to before we kind of wrap up here? Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) uh, There's a lot in between the, uh, you know, quotation marks that have happened. Certainly. Um, But I I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from this is um, a lot like what Tom said, being honest with yourself, being honest with others, recognizing that you have an issue. Um, apologizing uh, earnestly and often to family members that you've hurt, trying not to go back to old habits uh, that were present when you were addicted, but creating new ones Mm. that free you and uh, open you to new experiences and um, allowing grace for yourself and for others, because they're going to be going through the recovery process for the rest of their lives with you. Hmm. Um, and you know, um, yeah, having, having grace for yourself and them, because some things that you say, um, may trigger them from a past event Hmm. and you have to be aware of that. Um, some things they may do may trigger you, uh, and you have to be aware of that too, and then be willing to talk about it in a comfortable space that's safe. And, uh, that's how you, that's. For me, that's how I'm getting through it. Um, and my wife and I have had a reconnection. We recommitted ourselves to one another. We renewed our vows. And um, we're stronger than ever. And we talk about these things now instead of uh, running at each other or running from each other. Hmm. So, Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, Tom, ever anything else? No. No, sir. Gary, I thank you and, and um, appreciate you coming on and sharing with all of us. And um, I, I know that from your story, there is something for all of us to take away and to learn and to use as an example. So thank you for your bravery and, and uh, for also just making the time uh, this morning and having to put up with Father Tom for that. I am very, very sorry. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the shorts. <laughs> I got to figure out where I can get me a pair of those. We've threatened to put this on video, uh, be a video <laughs> podcast, but Tom keeps wearing checkered shorts and stuff like that. So we're going to avoid it as long as we can. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, we're back. Our season of Sabbath is over. So we'll start rolling out some episodes whenever we can uh, stand getting together in the same virtual room with one another. Um, again, thank you all for listening. May the peace of the Lord be always with you. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at at Fun Drain Pod. We 
We'd love to hear your comments on our episodes and also suggest future episode topics. Also, if you enjoy what we're doing, go on to iTunes and give us a review, please. Thanks a lot.